I find myself, whether it's in the grocery store or in a line at a doctor's office or seeing someone who don't feel empowered to speak up for themselves, that I feel that responsibility to do that and to, and to add voice to those who don't, who don't know that they can use the power in their own voice. From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Talithia Edwards, the founder and president of the Greater Bond Neighborhood Association, who has already secured more than $6 million for community revitalization. The Miami native came to Tallahassee as a freshman at Florida A&M University, where she met her husband, Harold. The couple has seven children and are currently caring for two more they hope to formally adopt in the near future. Talithia simply knows how to influence people and get things done. She has won numerous community and leadership awards, sits on influential boards, and still finds time to volunteer at her kids' schools. She learned to apply her superpowers as a mom to business and advocacy and is making a real difference that will be felt for years to come. We recorded this episode remotely and began our conversation talking about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Talithia's life and activities. Yeah, I'm really having to practice a lot of mindfulness because I can feel myself personally, um, the nerves and the anxiousness kind of rising in my family per se. It's a lot of us. It's 10 of us in the house. So that whole ordinance of no gathering of 10 or more really isolates us from family and friends because people are nervous and they're afraid um, of what's actually happening. But I had to really revert back to those stay-at-home mom days where I had a schedule that worked for us because I was listening to Leon County Public Schools and, you know, kind of watching the news and seeing what everybody is seeing we should be doing. And that was causing and raising my anxiety. And so um, earlier this week, I just said, you know what? I've done this before. I've managed a, a house that was with not a pandemic happening, right? And so we're going to go back to those basics, cooking with the kids, preparing a couple meals um, one day so that it lasts throughout the week, and really doing things that keep our anxiety down, get us out the house and moving around. As it relates to the community, I haven't stopped. I've got a lot of scorning from the elders in the community on Facebook and phone calls. <laughs> Telling you to stay home. <laughs> yes. Saying, yeah. listen, we need you all after this is over. So you need to stay at home, like be mindful. But they, there are people in our community that are dependent on us, that are looking up to leaders to say, hey, what do I do? How do I get this? And we have to put on that good united front. And I know that social distancing is, social distancing is important and we want to practice that, but we don't want to leave those who are vulnerable out to fend for themselves. What have you seen in the community that's encouraging to you about the way that it's responded to this crisis? Um, I love how I think both sides of town have come together, right? So we talk about it all the time, this 
notion of two Tallahassees. And right. immediately you saw, um, and I get chills every time I say it because it was real, it was genuine. You saw families and mothers and leaders from the North side coming and asking South side leaders, what do you need? How do I help? How can I be involved? And it's kind of bridging and, and, and erasing this line in a time of need and not seeing them and us. And that was so encouraging. It made my heart feel so good to actually see us do that and we know we talk about it all the time but to see it effortlessly and not have anybody be called out so to speak to to help or get involved that was super encouraging yeah and hopefully that's something that'll carry over when all this is done hopefully i'm yeah i'm hopeful of that all right so to put um you know, you obviously have a passion for the community and helping those around you. And so to put all that in context, I want to talk about your past and and where you grew up and what kind of where you got your start. So I know you grew up in Miami. Yeah. So uh, tell me about those early years and what was family life like for you down there? So Miami, I grew up in a single parent home. My mother, it was three of us. I had two younger sisters. And it's it's funny because it, but it's real that I I don't think about growing up a lot because I was ready to leave Miami uh, when I turned eighteen. That was the thought. My my mother was a great mom. She did everything she knew to do, but I grew up in what statistically would be the traditional single parent home. My mom worked two or three jobs. I was a latchkey kid taking care of my younger sisters. And um, I always felt what I described as pressure. I've, I've always felt that. Um, right. my, grandma, my grandmother was very integral in my early years. She died very young. I was 10. She died of lung cancer. And that was kind of my relief. But when my grandmother died, it was, you know, just me and my mom. And again, she was a young mother, had me at 17 and still doing the best she knows how to do. But um, still a lot in that. Right. Like um, that goes sure. along with that. And so I, I I had to grow up really fast and be responsible really fast. And, and, and so I don't really remember childhood as childhood. We moved a lot because she was you know, just, she, we didn't own anything. We were renting. And so right. if something happened or a job changed or, you know, if, if she got a divorce, because that happened too, we had to move. And so we did a lot of moving at, as a as children. And that was tough, not having anything, any home to actually remember. Even I, I drive home and I take my kids and I'm like, I lived here and I lived there and I lived there. And my kids are so confused. Like, really? <laughs> really? What house did you grow up in? And I'm like, right. all of these houses. Yeah. And so that that's most of what I remember um, about my early formative years. I did a lot of writing um, as a child. I journaled, which I named my journal. So I never wrote in one journal forever. I, they had different names. And that was a lot of my solace in those journals as a child. So when you say that you had response, you know, you took responsibility for your sisters, what did that mean? You had to make sure they were ready for school, that they had lunches packed, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I had to wake up early, get my sisters dressed for school and um, we had to leave to get on the bus. And so I had to drive, I had to get the bus to their elementary school, which was 
a couple blocks, when I say couple, not two or three, a long ways from my school. So I had to go to their school so that they can be there on time. And then I walked to school, which was maybe 20 minute walk from their school. So I was late a lot because I had to get them to school. And um, I had to learn how to cook because my mom was working. She worked during the day and then she worked at night and she wasn't off of that second job until after 10 o'clock. So I had to learn how to cook. And so it was it was that kind of responsibility. Once school was over, go back and pick my sisters up and get back home and clean the house and make sure they had homework done. My homework was done and um, and things were flowing like that. And were you in middle school or high school when this was going on? Um, middle and high school. So okay. um, high school specifically, I remember <laughs> getting suspended because I was always late. And I needed to explain to my um, principals that, hey, I'm late because I'm taking my sisters to school. Yeah. So I'm, I'm taking them to school, but I, I got to walk back here. So that's what's happening. And my mother, her job was downtown Miami. So it wasn't near where we were going to school. Eventually, because I was late all the time, my mom started putting my sisters in the school by where we live so that I wouldn't have to take them to school because we were going to end up, you know, with the truancy stuff because I wasn't there. Um, But um, what I decided to do, which was a good thing, was no matter where we moved, I decided I was going to stay at my middle school and my high school no matter what time I had to wake up to catch the bus. So I did a lot of bus riding um, in Miami really far. I went to a magnet middle school that was clearly cross town. I had to catch um, two buses to get there, but I mean, I made it. (laughs) Well, that's a lot. I mean, even for, you know, taking your sisters, but then by yourself and with safety ever an issue. I mean, that's a lot for a young girl to be doing by herself all the time. Yeah, you know, Dave, I never really thought about safety um, at that time because it was kind of what we had to do. We clearly say this, being aware of growing up in Miami and what where we lived and what was happening. So I have to be very honest and real about that. I don't want to sugarcoat that at right. all. That there, were, there were clearly dangers, right? And things were happening in the community and in the city that we should have been aware of. But we grow up very aware in Miami. We're, we're very conscious of our surroundings, even if, it's, even if it appears that we are not um, conscious. Um, so we know how to spot danger, how to pay attention to those surroundings. So at the moment while in it, I never thought about danger. Yeah, I've been robbed, right? Like attempted to be robbed and different things like that because I'm on the bus and I'm by myself. But yeah. growing up in it, you just do what you have to do. And it's it's that grit we talk about when we're talking about community trauma and resilience. It's having that resilience and that grit to really get to that next level. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine it's just kind of you get a sense for if you see something sketchy going on, you go to the other side of the street, you know, just have a an awareness, right, of what's happening. Exactly. I remember I could tell a story about riding the bus. I was coming from a friend's house and I was on the bus and um, it was two young men kind of sitting in the back of the bus. And in Miami, if you wore like a gold chain or something, really, you should take it off or tuck it in during this time when we were growing up. And um and on in this part of town that I was on the bus and I I didn't I didn't do that I was wasn't even thinking and so I'm um, I'm looking and kind of you know just gauging my surroundings as we would do and I saw these two young men kind of like talking 
and looking my way. So I knew what that meant. I'm like, oh man, I didn't take my chain off. And so <laughs> I'm thinking like, okay, how do I think faster than them? If right. I really ride the bus completely to the stop I need to get off at, they're going to rob me and then run across the bridge, which I don't live that way. So I said, okay, I'm going to get off maybe three or four stops and not expecting me. No one gets off in the middle of this route. Everyone rides it directly to the next connector bus. And so I got off that bus and I hauled down <laughs> a dark street till I got, you know, away from that area. So that's one instance of actually wow. being aware and paying attention to your surroundings and knowing that these are impending dangers that are real, right? And they are their everyday life um, growing up in Miami, how I did. And so that that's one instance of just having to be aware and cognizant of what's happening. Yeah. I guess that makes you grow up pretty fast when you oh, have yeah. to think like that. Definitely. I look at my children and sometimes I feel weird. Like they, they're doing things. I'm like, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? And my husband's like, baby, they're just being children. And I never experienced that. I never had that um, bit of, I guess, I've never been able to be that relaxed, Dave, right? Like, right. and I get it. My kids grow up and, and we've made it so that they grow up in a totally different atmosphere than what I grew up in. My husband, he also grew up in a totally different family dynamic and atmosphere. So he doesn't always understand, you know, kind of that trauma associated with it. But I do, I look at my kids and it seems weird because that's not the kind of childhood that I had. Right. So apart from caring from your sisters, what was high school like for you? You're, you know, being at Miami Central and what were you involved in? What did you enjoy doing? What was school like? You know, um, the academic part. How? What was all that? Oh, yeah. So I love high school. If I could go back, I, I joke and I, I said I would go back. High school was wonderful. I was just as extroverted as I am right now. Um, I participated in the drama club. I was... Um, first attended for homecoming is actually a story behind that homecoming story but um first attended for homecoming Wait, well we have time you can tell us a story if it's a good story <laughs> yeah so <laughs> so let me tell a story about this homecoming okay story. So, so attendant is like the homecoming court is that, is that what yeah, you mean? yeah so okay. we have homecoming queen first attended second attended so that's like okay. the runner-ups gotcha. so in high school i was really popular and I never ran for any of the queens that was kind of like not my thing but I discovered that homecoming was going to be on my birthday so I was like oh yeah I'm a big birthday person like <laughs> I should be homecoming queen on my birthday that's that gonna, would be pretty awesome yeah that's gonna be yeah. perfect and so I ran for homecoming queen but very lots of days ago because I knew oh if I, I, mean, I always run I always win and I had a friend girl who she ran and she wanted to be homecoming queen. She and I knew each other since um, elementary school, I mean, middle school. Um, and she wrote her flyers in Spanish. She learned how to tell the kids in sign language that to vote <laughs> for her. She did all these wonderful things. And so um, as it ha as we have it, when everybody did the voting, they really messed up the ballots. And so the it was really close to my name and someone else's name. And so when you would check the box, you would check it not on my name, but the young lady under me, which was another girl. And so many people were scratching off their ballots and rechecking because they noticed that mistake because the alignment was off. Right. So long story short, ballots were thrown in the garbage that was scratched off that didn't have um, 
my name on it. And that made, I won, still won with them throwing the ballots in. So I won. And Jennifer, oh, I'm saying her name, but my friend, okay. she, yeah. she won um, under me. So she would have been first attendant. And so when when we found that out, we decided to allow, I decided let Jennifer be homecoming queen and me be the first attendant because she had worked harder. And she found out about that, which was sad because I told everybody, please don't let her, you know, don't take that away from her. Well, how did you, how did you have the authority to make that decision? Well, because I work with SGA, I, I wasn't doing these counties, but I was right. really intricate with administration and everything. And, you know, they asked, yeah. how did I feel about that or whatever? And because ballots were thrown away, did I want to recount the votes? And I was like, no, absolutely not. And so Jennifer had worked really hard. She deserved it, right? Like I just was going off popularity if I had won. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and so she, at the end of senior year, she signed everybody's book, Homecoming Queen 2001. And she didn't sign my book um, like that. I said, why didn't you write Homecoming Queen for me? And so she was like, well, because I wasn't a true queen. I was like, no, you were, you were, you were, you did everything. That was a lesson for me, right? To use influence in a way that is not self-serving. So I, I tell that whole story. And it is one of the really foundational points of my life that I could have been selfish. And I, I don't have a real reason why I wasn't, except she was my friend, that I knew her um, in middle school and I knew the work that she had put into it. But it it is served as a staple for the influence that I have that I always want to make sure that is benefiting those who most deserve it and not yeah. just benefiting myself. But back to my high school life, um, I did drama club, lots of drama, lots of speaking, um, introducing officials that would come to our school, state officials, local officials, and just really active in school. I was an uh, honorary football player, right? Because I was a super fan of my football team in high school. And so I was the only girl who the coach would give the workout gear. So I took a lot of pride in our team and how hard they worked and what they did. So I enjoyed the the camaraderie and the fellowship of um, of high school. It was an outlet for me. It was I, I could be free. I could really be a kid. I did speech and debate um, when I was in school. That was wonderful. I was not able to go to as many competitions outside of school as I would like because, again, I had responsibilities. And my mom would remind me, no, I got to go to work. You got to watch my children. And so I didn't compete on a level I thought I could have competed on. So I imagine, it, you know, it's like what you said, that compared to the responsibility and the heaviness and the weight you felt taking care of your sisters, high school was fun and a release and a way to kind of be yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a release. I found a mentor in high school, Miss um, Jones. She was literally um, a person who helped put things into perspective for me. Dave, I was really rough around the edges. I grew up in um, a house that you know my mom didn't have a high school diploma, right? And so she, I didn't see a lot of things. And Miss Jones was the person who gave these little antidotes and would pull me to the side. And say, because I was sharp tongue and quick tempered, and Miss Jones would say, Talithia, you can catch more bees with honey than you can with vinegar. She would sit me down and say, Listen, you're really, really bright, like you're on the honor roll, but 
you you're gonna have to like really reel yourself in and, and pe- so people can see your potential. And and if you don't, you're gonna have problems. And so I really credit Miss Jones for a lot of the refining of myself before I went off mm-hmm. to college. She she took time to say a lot of things that soaked me and I didn't always understand it, understand it at the time, but she said a lot of things that even sticks with me today. She saw things I wanted to do and she made it happen. I had a, I love taking pictures, but I didn't own a camera. So she put me on the yearbook, a yearbook uh, committee and gave me a camera that I could take home with me. And she developed my film for free. And I took pictures of everything and anything. And it was a way to capture beauty outside of what I was seeing through my natural eye. And and, and I, I really appreciate that. Another pivotal moment, Miss Jones was a part of Jack and Jill of America. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I have, yeah. Yeah, so she was a part of Jack and Jill with her children. And I couldn't be because my mom was not in Jack and Jill, but she could take me to events as a visitor with her. And Miss Jones took me to this swanky Christmas party. And it was really a block party happening in my neighborhood that I wanted to be at. But she said to me, nope, you're going to this party. And we go to this party, Dave, and we enter this house around the back. And the whole house in the back is made of glass. So I can see <laughs> all the way into this house. And then right. I look inside, and it's this enormous Christmas tree. I've never seen a tree this big or ceilings this high. Never. Right. And at that moment, and I feel like I still feel the tears coming. At that moment, I realized that life was different elsewhere. There was more happening that I was unaware of and that I needed to find out what that was. And it was at that moment that I I said, there's more to life than what I know, and I got to explore it. That's awesome. So she not only had a huge impact on you personally, but she also modeled mentoring for you that you've obviously used a lot in your life over the years. Yes, she really has. It was, it, it was, it was, it was different because my mother took offense to that relationship because she, I guess feeling inadequate, right? Like realizing that maybe Ms. Jones had tools she didn't have, but now as an adult and as a mother myself, I realize that there are people every day in our lives that will have tools that we don't have, even for our own children, because we're doing the best that we can. And so much of, I could have had a lot more of Miss Jones had my mother been open to the relationship, right? Like she, she would say things that would kind of make me not be able to really indulge in that relationship, but I'm happy that I did get what I got from her. And I credit a lot of who she was to me with who I am today. I, I write her letters. I send pictures of my children because I am a lot of what she gave me as well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you, you did get out of Miami and you came to Tallahassee to attend Florida A&M university and studied English and Afro-American studies. So what brought you to FAMU? How did you get to Tallahassee? Okay, always a story. So my plan was to go to Spelman. <laughs> That's where I wanted to go. I was going to Atlanta, and I remember it came the the decision day, really. And my mom had said to me very clearly, listen, I don't have money for you to go to school, and I definitely don't have money for you to go out of state. So 
you might need to think about this Spelman um, admission or whatever. And so I looked at my applications and I was like, okay, how far can I go and still be close enough, right, that I could afford school and and go home if I needed to within a couple hours? And that was FAMU. And um, so I ended up here at FAMU with a lot of other classmates. I n- always knew I wanted to major in English because I had spoken to an attorney. I wanted to be a lawyer. And they had said, don't major in political science or um, criminal justice because that that isn't what teaches you law. Like you need critical thinking skills to be a lawyer. And so I, I knew that I would major in English. And so that was always kind of set for me. And I came to FAM, was dropped off like any normal kid, and with no tools. I, I didn't. I was a first generation college student, so first one to come to school and not really know what to expect here on my own. I'm thankful that I had a sense of who I was and um, a sense of morals and values, so I didn't do a lot of crazy stuff. But I was still free, right? And I was yeah. by myself, and those. Things got hard really quick after um, freshman year because I came with two scholarships, but they were only one year scholarships. Uh-huh. And um, after that one year was over, it was kind of like you needed financial aid or whatever. And um, I remember my life here being in jeopardy because fam, you had a lot of students. So after freshman year, you were not guaranteed housing. And I lived in Palmetto South. So I did not get housing for my sophomore year. And um, I've told this story before, but I didn't get housing. And I called my mom and I said, I don't have housing. I need to get an apartment. And she said, I can't pay your bills and my bills. Like I'm raising children. I can't do it. And I'm thinking, she's like, you're going to have to come home. And I'm like, oh, no, I cannot <laughs> go back home. Because if I go back home, I'm lit- I'm going to be nothing. And I, I-, I say that. And it's my story. You know, people may not agree with that, but that's how I felt. If I went home, I would get trapped in some low end job and I, I wouldn't, I would, I felt I would be nothing. So I get on the bus and I'm riding and I see what I'm thinking are apartments on Houghton street. And I get off that bus and I go and I say, Hey, um, I'm a student at family. I'm looking for an apartment. How much does it cost to live here? And so the, the man there, he says, um, you can't live here. These are for families. I'm like, I'm a one person family. Can I? Live here? <laughs> yeah. so, they, he says these are HUD housing. I didn't know what HUD housing was. I was like, well, can I live in HUD housing? And he says, no, these are for low income families. And I said to this man, I didn't know anything else to say but to share my heart with him. I said, sir, I'm in college and I'm from Miami. And if you don't allow me to live here, I'm going to have to go home to Miami and I'm going to be nothing. And I don't know what it was. But that man told me, I'm going to let you live here. I promise him I would be a good resident. I would tutor the kids. Whatever he needed me to do, I would do that. And I wow. kept my word. And he allowed me to live in those. It was Swacoco Apartments at the time. And my rent was $40. And that's literally how I was able to stay in school. That's crazy. I mean, that's you must have really touched him because I'm sure you were not supposed to be there. No, I was right? not. No, not at all. I was not supposed to be there. And wow. <laughs> the crazy part in that, 
is that I wasn't supposed to be there, but I told every college student that he allowed college students to live. (laughs) I'm sure he loved that. Yeah. So after a while, he allowed a few of us. He was selective, but there ended up being college. He broke the rules. And many of us tell that story. Like us living there allowed us to literally stay in school and, and graduate. Right. So how did how did school go? How did it go from being, you know, the homecoming queen and in a big deal at your high school to a college where almost everybody was a big deal in their high school? How how yeah. did that go? Yeah, so that was a, that was a paradigm shift, right? So I'm top 20% in my class in high school and you know, you're one of the smart kids and then you get to FAMU and everybody is smart. I mean, right, you're coming right. with so many brilliant people and so you realize that now we are colleagues and we need our intellect to work off of each other. Um, I didn't get really active in high in, in college. I plan to come here to do my work and really I wanted to make lifelong friends. That was my plan. I didn't want to get involved in the politics of college because I realized very quickly it was politics in college, right? Like you sure. got you have your SGA people, you got your Greek life, you have all of this stuff. And not that I didn't have any hopes of any of those things, but I decided I'm going to do college different than I did high school um, because it was on my own terms. Right. And the only thing I did do with with a couple of my friends, we founded an organization we called Divine Dimes and Dimes stood for Determined, Intelligent, Mature, Elite Sisters. And it was for... It was That's a pretty for, high standard to live up to. I know. It was for <laughs> freshman ladies entering the campus with no one like it was for freshmen to be able to fellowship and mingle because we realized that we had come from Miami and we didn't know many people. Right. And so, and we also were all first generation college students. So we didn't know what to expect on campus. And so that was like our fun thing. We funded it ourselves and it was, it was a lot of fun, but I just really came to school did my work and went home. Um, I was married the day before I graduated college, actually. Okay. And so I didn't, we had already had one child. And so it was really, it was, it was work and that's how it went. Yeah. All right. So good. That's a good segue into the next phase of your life. You graduate, you get married. I didn't know that, but right away after. Right. And uh, so, um, where did you, Harold is your husband? So yeah. where did you meet, and uh, how? Tell me about him. How you met? How how all that happened? Okay, so my initial meeting of Harold, he lived also in Palmetto, but he was in Phase Three in the back, and his roommate was like the resident sweet house. So they, he sold brownies and cookies and candy, and so we <laughs> would go and buy late night snacks from from this this particular that's a good way to meet girls by the way that's a good strategy right (laughs) yeah so they sold they sold these snacks and um i remember harold vaguely but he was really quiet and so in my mind i remember seeing him once he bought it up to me later but you don't remember me i was chuck he sold the snacks or whatever and so um that's my first initial meeting with him but when we really really connected um, he had gotten one of those apartments that I tell you, I told college. So right. we stayed across the street from each other. And one day he was like, Hey girl, you don't remember me. And I'm thinking like, who is this guy? <laughs> He's, you know, kind of slow. <laughs> that was my <laughs> thought. 
And he was like, listen, Chuck was my roommate. So I was like, oh, okay. And, and kind of left it at that. Maybe a couple years, maybe a year or so later, I needed to move because I told you my sister moved into my apartment. She had her daughter. So I was giving up that apartment so that she can live there with her child. And um, I asked, Harold had an old beat up Ford truck. If he could move my stuff because um, I needed help. And he said, yes, he could help me. And I still didn't remember him, Dave. This is the crazy part. And I didn't remember him how he thinks I should remember him. Right. And so um, he's helping me move. And I'm like, listen, I don't have any money to give you, but I can cook. I cook really well so I can feed you. So he was like, okay, whatever. So he asked and he, um, I said, well, who are your friends? Who do you hang out with? And he was like, I don't really have friends. So I said, oh, I'll be your friend. I remember saying this. Yeah. And one day he was calling my cell phone. I was like, oh, no, that's that slow guy. I'm not going to answer it. And something came back to my mind. You told him you would be his friend. And literally, Dave, that is all she wrote. We began to hang out and he was funny and it felt like freedom that I had mm-hmm. never felt before. And I have many guy friends. Most of my best friends are male but I had never been with a person who made me feel so free in myself. And, um, and so it happened very quickly. We never dated officially, but we were married within a year. Wow. All right. So you and Harold have eight children. Now you're the first guest on my podcast to have more children than me, which (laughs) we have six. So, um, all right. So tell me, we got to go down the list. Tell me their names and ages in order. That's important. It's got to be in order. Okay. Jermaine, he's 14. Hania is 12. Elijah's 11. Joshua's 10. Haley's 9. Harper's 6. She'll actually be 7 on Sunday. Harley is 5. And Romel is the baby. He's 10 months old. Okay. Wow. That's um. So you've had babies. We had, we counted once. We were in diapers for 14 straight years. So when the last one was out, it's like I got a pay raise because we had been doing that for a long time. So you're in the same situation. You've had a baby around for as long as you can remember, pretty much, right? As as long as I can remember. I remember Harold and I talking and him saying, oh, I want to have five kids. And I'm thinking like, "Mm, no, he's like, seven might even be good. I was thinking like, once we start having these babies, he's not going to really want this many kids. Right. And I, I remember getting to number three and I was done because believe it or not, I wanted no children. And that was kind of part of my growing up. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't dig into You that, had been but, a mom essentially for a long time. Right? Exactly. So I, I didn't want any kids. I didn't want to be responsible for anybody else outside of myself. And so, um, but he was this wonderful guy. And I'm like, okay, maybe we'll compromise at three since he wants this huge number. Right. And I remember getting to three and feeling like just every day I cried. I was just like, I'm just tired of being pregnant because I'm pregnant all the time. Lo and behold, I did it four four more times, right? <laughs> because <laughs> we just did. But we were in diapers forever, seemed like. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking for us, it was probably seven or ten years. We we, kid, we had kids in diapers, right. seemed like. I, and now we got a baby again, so we're doing it all over again. But I, I remember the looks and the talk. I don't know if you experienced this. Oh, but for sure. 
people, well, you know, you know what, you know what causes, you know what causes that, right? that, right? Yeah. You don't have a yep. TV at your house. You know, people ask all of these really inconsiderate questions. I remember right. having a baby shower and people like, oh, who bought the prophylactics? Like, I'm married. This is, we're married. <laughs> we're, we're not like out here. We're not yeah. asking for anything. We're married people having right. babies. And so that was really difficult on my psyche. So as much as my body went through it, a lot of my mind, I didn't enjoy it because I was always defending the mm-hmm. next baby I was having. And, and that that caused a lot of hurt, you know, even in my marriage when I would talk with my husband, because like, he wasn't hearing it. Like people high five him like, oh, yeah, man, yeah, you have another yeah. baby. Sure. You're the man. And they look at me, this young girl who had all of this, gifting, right? I was supposed to go to law school, but I married a man right out of college and I decided not to go to law school and I stayed home to raise babies. So that was not respectable. And that somehow I was doing myself a disservice that because you should know that a man is not going to always be able to be counted on, you know? So I shocked everybody. We've been married 14 years and, you know, People looking like, oh wow, y'all still you're still doing it. But I got so many talks and so many pull asides. Like, listen, you were going to law school. What are you planning to do? Are you not going to do that? And I I didn't have for real answers. I was just raising my kids. Right. Do you think people thought of your choices as being lesser than you could have been? Like you were settling for being a mom instead of pursuing some some dream? You know, as far as being a lawyer or something else. Oh, definitely. I I got called only a mother. Um, why would you decide to be a mother? You never wanted kids. Why would you decide to be a mother? And then why would you stay at home and choose not to have an income in this day and age where two incomes is supposedly, you know, optimum or supreme? Right. And I would get asked, when are you going back to law school? Like for me, Dave, after so long that I didn't go to law school, I realized that, yeah, I wanted to be an attorney. When I had all this ambition and all this drive, it was a part of my life's plan that I was my whole life plan was to go to college, go to Howard for law school, um, work as a state attorney somewhere, then go to Washington, D.C., hopefully make it through the judgeship somewhere. And ultimately I wanted to be the first African-American Supreme court female justice. That was my plan. And I, I had my own internal struggles with that, that I was now an expert on mopping the floor, right. And cleaning up and learning babies, differentiating cries. I was now that expert, but I had to find, find value in what I was doing as a mom, because I knew staying at home with my kids and actually learning them and teaching them and pouring myself into them was just as valuable. I just did not understand it yet. And so right. it was not not until my children started getting into school and I was seeing how they were excelling or other moms wanted to know, how do you do it? How do I do this? How do I learn this? How that that there was value in what I was doing. This episode is sponsored by Locally Loved Tallahassee, formerly Socially Loved. I'm excited to have a partner that has the same general goals of sharing great local stories and can benefit from reaching our audience. Their focus is to love where you live by sharing some smart, 
safe ways to love local. Even if it takes a few extra steps right now, supporting our neighbors is always the right choice. I encourage you to be part of their new Facebook group, Locally Love Tallahassee, focused on celebrating local people and places. Join the thousands, including me, who are already on board and sharing stories about what makes Tallahassee so special. When you look back at at your life now and you know you have sacrificed personal goals for your family and to be a mom, how, how do you feel about that? Well, I feel pretty good about that. I, I am now in a space where as they're older, I'm thinking about what is it that I want to do when I boil down all of these big high profile goals. What is it that I wanted to do? I told you that I journaled. And so I found one of my journals and I wrote all of these life goals and I literally wrote them out detail by detail. But at the end of that statement and some part of the wisdom that I had, um, I wrote, ultimately, I just want to help people and be a great writer. I was like, right. oh, yeah. I do enjoy writing, right? Something that kind of got lost as I was raising the kids and helping people was the ultimate goal. Like even in being an attorney, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. And so I'm doing that. It started first in the lives of my kids, where in my family, where I learned how to give myself there, like really unselfishly. And, And that has trickle into community and how I serve. When we got the baby um, 10 months ago, people thought I was crazy. You were home free. Your last child was in kindergarten. You had everybody out the house. Why would you accept the child, one that wasn't yours and that you didn't really know the mom? And I just, it felt like my responsibility. That's what it felt like. And it wasn't I can tell a whole elaborate story about it now, but at the time, it just was the right thing to do. Okay, so I didn't realize that. So there's more to the story of your last baby. Yes. So the last baby is not biologically um, me and Harold's child. Um, He was essentially dropped on our doorstep, um, for lack of a better term. Um, His mother came with a handwritten note. And said, um, she, you know, she couldn't care for him, and could we watch him for a couple of days? Was, was what it was supposed to be. And ten years later, I'm mean, ten years, ten months later, here we are. We right. still have him, and he's a wonderful addition to our our house. He really fit in, like he always belonged here. But um, yeah, we accepted him, and so we've taken that responsibility. Um, for him. He's the community baby. That's the hashtag we use. Hashtag. Yeah, I saw community. that. Yeah. 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 So that's that's how we got him. So why do you think that the mom dropped him off on your doorstep? I this is what I think. So if I were to tell you the whole story, you could edit it out because I want to give you the whole context so you can understand it. So okay. Mr. Norris was a guy who did odds and ends jobs in the neighborhood became a really good friend of mine although he had substance abuse issues and all of this but he was like in a wayward kind of way a dysfunctional kind of father or uncle or something um and so i had known him this whole time mr norris is suffering with liver cancer at this time and so i'm in chicago i get a call last may on this monday it's the monday after mother's day he says um the young girl had a baby 
and she wanted me to know. And I was like, okay, um, I'm in Chicago. Is anything she needs? She need prayer or whatever. So I called my daughter's godmother and asked, could she go to the hospital and pray with this girl? Cause she called to let me know she had a baby. And, um, and she did that. And I kind of thought it was, that was it. And I got back home on that Friday morning. I remember, oh, this girl had a baby. She wanted me to know. So I called Mr. Norris and I asked, how's the girl? She had the baby. Um, how is she doing? Whatever. And he said she would call, he would call her and, and, <clears throat> and check on her. And so he did that. She came to my house, Dave, with this little baby, four days old, uh, right out the hospital. And all she had was three diapers and like two little hospital things in a formula. And I was wow. like, where's the rest of the stuff? And he, she was like, this is all I have. So I said, like, okay, I took a picture on Facebook with the baby. And I'm like, hey, um, this mom just came to my house. Y'all, let's help this mom keep this baby. And people bought stuff to my house, like girl stuff, boy stuff, little knickknacks they had. And some people cashed at me. So it was about $100 people cashed at. I took her to the store because I was just coming from a collective impact conference where I was learning about charity to justice and allowing people to do stuff for themselves. So I took her to the store and I said, whatever she picks up, I'm going to allow her, I'm going to pay for it no matter what it costs. So she picked up a lot of things for the baby, came back. She packed everything up, Dave, and she took it with the baby. I'm thinking this mother is going to be fine. That was going to be the last time I would see her. A day later, she bought that baby back without the stuff we bought and a handwritten note and said, she needed help. She didn't have anywhere to stay. And she didn't want her baby on the streets with her. And yeah, it's had him since then. Tallahassee Democrat wrote a story about it. USA Today picked it up. Um, so it's kind of been out there. But in the black community, I'm not an anomaly. People have been raising babies that are not theirs forever. So this is it. Is it new? It sounds, it's a great story for media. Because I have seven kids, she takes on another baby, and it's this great hero syndrome kind of thing. But it's really it's been it's been happening forever, and I felt the responsibility to that child. I could not send him out to be in the streets when I knew I'm used to doing this. I've done it forever. Right. So I know it's. I mean, in in all cultures, it's you know grandparents help out family members, aunts, uncles. But I, I don't hear that much about just other people in the community, you know, taking on that responsibility. But that that happens. Yeah, I mean, I, you hear mostly with caregiver stuff, but there, I'm pretty sure there's been instances after the article came out. I had older women in the community come up to me and say, make sure you get custody of that baby legally because I was mm-hmm. raising a child and the mom came and took it after three years or somebody came and got it after four, got the child after 14 years or whatever. Right. So I've heard all of these stories of people raising children and then that mom or that father, somebody getting their life together or wanting benefits for the child and coming to take that child away from that person. So I, I couldn't think about all of that at the time. Like I, all I could think about is how do I keep, this child safe? How do I keep him in a place where he's going to have love and siblings and parents and 
if he can have a chance at at a life. That's what I thought about. So have you have you legally adopted him? Not yet. So I've literally been the glorified babysitter for the last nine months. Um, when I was invited to the state of the state address, young man tapped me on my shoulder. And he was like, excuse me, ma'am, are you the lady who got the baby? I was like, yeah. He was like, how is DCF treating you? I was like, I don't have a DCF case. And he could not believe I didn't have a DCF case. Yeah. And one of my LT classmates who also works for um, DCF was working on her end to try to figure out something needs to be done. So lo and behold, within the last month, I've gotten temporary legal custody of him. So tell me how you got so connected to the bond community and how you kind of grew to the role that you're in, in representing bond and, and looking out for the welfare of its, its residents, protecting its history, looking forward to its future. How did all that happen? Yeah, it was kind of by accident. Harold and I, once we got married, we were buying a home and we had looked kind of all over this city. And um, we really liked the house in the Jay Gaither area, which we didn't realize at the time the names of the neighborhoods. At least I didn't because I'm not from Tallahassee. And um, the house that we bought here on Saxon Street was both our number two um, pick. And Harold, in good wisdom, did not want to use all of the amount we had qualified for to buy a home. So he was like, we want to stay under this number. And this house fit what we were looking for. It had four bedrooms, two bathrooms, and it was in that price range. And so we bought this house again, not even understanding that this was the bond community. So we got several years passed and I attend a neighborhood leadership academy. And we're learning all about Tallahassee and the government and everything in our neighborhoods. And someone says, you live in the bond community. I'm like, oh, really? I grew up in Miami. We don't really name our communities. We name our parts of town. And so I was like, okay, well, that's good. And um, I said, there's no recognized voice. Like, what do you mean by that? We got county and city commissioners. So I'm thinking that those are the voices that represent the community. No, we don't have any recognized voice in the actual community. So I I dug deeper to find out what does that mean? They meant like a community leader, a neighborhood association, or some resident-led sort that would give insight into what the community wanted. I ended up, um, I was invited to um, a CAN meeting. CAN was just getting started, Capital Area Neighborhood Network. Um, Christique was starting that with other Southside residents and creating this Southside coalition of neighborhoods to be advocates for our own communities and Southside as a whole. Um, I was, my neighborhood was not even a recognized neighborhood. We didn't have a recognized neighborhood association. We had Providence, Appalachian Ridge, South City, those areas that were kind of organized. So um, I came back to my community and started with um, neighborhood affairs. Andrea Griffin was working in the city of Tallahassee at the time. And she gave me this package. This is how you become a neighborhood association. So they gave me a map and said, draw the boundaries of the bond neighborhood. And I asked what were the traditional boundaries of the neighborhood. And they gave me some specs of that. And I extended that line to include FAMUA because a lot of um, new construction was beginning on FAMUA. And so I included FAMUA came all the way down to Lake Bradford, back up Orange, 
kind of scooped around College Terrace, and that thus became the Greater Bond Neighborhood Association. I mean, Greater okay. Bond Neighborhood. But I'm like, okay, where do we start? In my in my mind, you start with the school because the school is central to the in this neighborhood. It sits in the middle of the community, and so right. if you start with the school you're going to begin to see the issues that are happening in the homes and what people are dealing with. Did you ruffle some feathers by being the, you know, the girl from Miami who wants to come in and, 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 you know, kind of lead a community that, like you said, that you didn't grow up in? Definitely. I, I ruffled, I ruffled a lot of feathers at first. People were saying, Hey, I want to help. What can I do to help? And that was great. We wanted everybody to help. We wanted the churches to help also, but I wanted churches to understand that this is 23 churches in this neighborhood, but the church has a different role than the neighborhood does, right? And I think that was where I really stepped on the toes, where I was making a distinction between the role of the church and the role of the neighborhood and how we were to move forward. Like the church's responsibility is to save souls and to, you know, to minister to the, the, the soulful need of the people where the neighborhood has to focus on those infrastructural needs, the um, economic needs, all of those things we have to focus on that will not necessarily align with the mission of the church. And so I believe that is right. where the, the biggest offense came. I never imagined I would carry this every day, Dave. I never imagined yeah. I would wake up with thinking about my neighborhood every single day and how can I find resources and bring back here to really help build things up. I understand growing up in poverty. I didn't understand what poverty was at that time in in these terms, but I understand being in a single parent home. I understand being a child who had to care for my sisters because my mama was working. I understand not having things and having to understand, as my mother would say, because I was the oldest. I know what that feels like. And so my drive every day is how do we create a community and a city that kids don't have to grow up understanding because they live in poverty or because no one has spoken up for them. I never imagined I would feel that responsibility. I never imagined it. It's kind of ironic that you're, you're still saddled, not saddled, you've chosen it. But you have this heavy responsibility, kind of like when you were a kid. I've never struggled with my own voice. So I've, I've never had self-esteem issues. And I, I mean, if we were talking about the, I didn't go into growing up being a short, fat, dark-skinned girl, that those were things that were looked down on growing up. But I never struggled with self-esteem. I never struggled with my voice. And um, I think that's that's God, right? That I never had those issues because most people would have had those issues. You know, poor, single family with these physical characteristics that most people tease you about. And so because I never struggled with that, I've always felt a sense of responsibility to use my voice for others who had not yet recognized their voices. Mm. And um, I'm able to articulate that now in a way that sounds really good, but that is what I've always felt a measure of responsibility for that. I find myself, whether it's in the grocery store or in a line at a doctor's office of seeing someone who don't feel empowered to speak up for themselves, that I feel that responsibility to do that and to, and to add voice 
to those who, who, who don't, who don't know that they can use the power in their own voice. So you had mentioned the $6.4 million in support of the, uh, the neighborhood first plan to revitalize the area. So what is that money for? How is it being used? How is that going to impact the bond community? Yeah, so it's $6.4 million over the next three years, and it is to implement the Neighborhood First Plans that we put together, which has four priority areas, public safety, um, beautification, land use, and economic impact and resident empowerment. And so most of it will be used on infrastructure. We've created in the plan programs like the Residential Facade Grant, which will help build up the current stock of homes in the neighborhood, which are older stock homes. The linear park, which is being built right now to add beautification to the neighborhood. Um, we are currently, before this pandemic, was working on devising a um, housing strategy for bonds specifically because we have 23 city-owned lots and we want to do new construction, some multifamily. We want to incentivize individuals to buy homes and move here. So a down payment assistance program um, to help improve our home ownership rate. Because right now we're at about a 27% ownership. And so the majority is rental property. And um, so that 6.4 over these three years will be used for those things. You know, I mean, what are your goals? I know it's not just infrastructure and buildings and it's it's the people, the, you know, the residents, the business owners, all that. I mean, what 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 is your what are your hopes for the bond community? What would you like to see it become or become again? Yes. So I'm hoping in 20 years that would mean my oldest son would be 34. I'm hoping that if he wanted to, he can find a home in this community and that it was free of drugs and crime and that it was opportunity for work, real work to make a real living wage near his home. Right. There were thriving commerce that the schools were high performing and that he did not have to drive his children outside of the neighborhood to go to school, that you could walk the streets and not fear that people were doing the wrong things. You could play outside that you individuals, when you talked about the bond community, that's in the central urban core of this community, that it was a model for what revitalization really was, not gentrification, but actually bringing and restoring the community back to the vibrance of what it was, which would be families, which would be high-performing schools, it would be jobs, it would be intergenerational relationships. Neighbors would know each other. That is what I'm hoping for in 20 years. Right. Yeah. That'd be great. And it's, you know, hopefully, like you said earlier, that process of people from other parts of town coming together to help make that happen. Um, I know that that's an important part of it. We're traditionally an African-American community and I'm all for this neighborhood staying African-American if it, if it wants to, but I want people, if they, if they're not African-American, they want to live here to want to live here. Right. That not say is that side of town and that's their community, but that is our community and that we can all, live wherever we want to live and it's equally as thriving as another part of town. Sure. All right. I'm going to shift gears here for a second. Um, you've received numerous awards and honors over the last couple of years. Leon County 2016 Neighbor of the Year, Tallahassee's 2019 25 Women You Need to Know, 
the Ruben Askew Community Engagement Award, Leadership Tallahassee 2019 Pace Setter Honoree, Echo Making a Difference Community Award. You're also a member of the uh, current Leadership Tallahassee Class 37. That's a lot of recognition and a lot of appreciation for what you're doing in the community. So tell me, how does that make you feel? What, what do you think about when you're receiving these awards and people are thanking you for what you're doing in the Bond community? It's funny because I actually feel a little embarrassed to receive the awards um, because I feel like it's so much to be done. And that is that is my honest feeling. It, it really feels like it's so much work to be done. And so the awards, I feel, can be distracting. And um, to other people, not to me, to other people that she's this, she's that, she, she's received this award. But in honesty, the reward is when I look and I go to the school and we have a Leaping for Literacy program that awards uh, rewards the kids for meeting their reading goals. And they're leaping to get this money because they met their reading goals. Those are great awards. And I, I don't want to diminish any of the any of those honors, but I don't want to let them go to my head to make me feel like I've done anything so great because there's still so much to be done. I remember um, at the at the chamber when we did the Leadership Tallahassee Awards, I had just put a shrimp in my mouth because I just knew one of the other wonderful women in that category was going to win that award. <laughs> and uh, and I when my name was called, I almost choked because I didn't I didn't expect that. And that was one of the most humbling awards for me because I'm looking at a room full of leaders and they're from all over this community. And as I said, when I got the award, I didn't really know what I was going to say. And so this was off the cuff. And I said, I received this award representing a group of people that are barely in rooms like this. And I did mm. not take that. I did not take that lightly. I, I I felt a responsibility. That award stayed in the in the box for a really long time because I hadn't thought about it until my son asked me. He said, Mom, this is a beautiful crystal award. Why is it still in the box? And it was that day I felt even more responsibility um, receiving that pace setter award to actually get the, the work done. I don't just want to be talking about it. And we do a lot of talking and meetings are necessary, Dave, but I want to make sure that if I'm setting a pace, you all are saying I'm a pace setter, that I'm setting the pace to show results and that things are actually right. going to be done. And so they, they, they are great recognitions and I appreciate everyone who's recognized me for those, but it's definitely a, a, a firecracker under my backside to actually say, keep, keep doing work, girl. Yeah, that's awesome. What do you, do you run across people who ask you, or does anyone ever ask you, um, you know, what, can, I'm just one person. What can I do? How much difference can one person make? Or, oh yeah, you know, I mean, what do you say to those people? People ask that question all the time. And I tell them you are the most powerful tool in this whole community working. It is literally starts with one person. And as you're working, you're going to meet other like-minded people and you're going to begin to find your passions, right? So you may start out with me just because you don't know 
where where you want to be and you just want to do something. But as you start working in this community, you're going to find where your passion is and where you belong and where you make the most impact. All right. So you also serve on a lot of boards, um, you know, Title I Advisory Board, Pregnancy Help and Information Center, Early Childhood Education, Office of Early Learning, Preschool Development, you know, things related to all the things that you're passionate about. And that makes a lot of sense. So how how you juggle all that? I serve on boards that I'm really passionate about. Five Center in particular is one of the boards I love because I believe in the organization and what it actually stands for and what work we do. I was actually a client at the Five Center. My second pregnancy was just rough. And Harold came home one day and was like, listen, you need some help because I can't help you <laughs> with what you're going right. through. And um, and I went there as a client and loved the organization. And and I would come in and out as a client as I got pregnant with the, with the different kids. But um, ha, ha, the opportunity came to serve on the board. And I've been on the board now for about six years. And so it's that responsibility and that love of the organization. So I believe in the work. I'm not on any board that mm-hmm. I don't believe in the work that's actually being done. And so it's a sacrifice of time, but it's, it's, it's still that duty to community, right? That we have to govern these organizations and make sure everybody's fiscally responsible, that whole jazz. But at the end of the day, I'm committed to the work that these organizations provide for our community. Right. Yeah, I know Ryan Sprague does a great job with the Phi Center, impacting oh, yeah. a lot of families in a really powerful way. Ryan is wonderful. I, I think I, I have so much great stuff to say about Ryan. I think he's he's a wonderful guy, um, a great example, not only as a CEO of the Phi Center, but in our community, right? That right. father, all of these things. And so I really would love for more people to know about the great work that the Phi Center does because I've seen this a lot that people it's a Christian based organization, but it's really the organization puts his money where his mouth is. It's not, it not only speaks pro life, but it actually walks a mother and parent through every process. You need things. I, be, I believe that you should have this child. So I'm going to walk you through all of it. The emotional support, the physical, just all of this stuff. So, He's a great leader with us. He's very fun-loving, so he makes his job and the really the things that need to be done, you know, fun and exciting. So it's great to serve on the board. So it's, it's a yeah. wonderful, wonderful place. He's a wonderful yeah. guy. He does. He is. He does great work. So tell. I also see that you have. Um, I know public speaking is a big part of what you do, and that you've actually done a TED talk, which I'm a little jealous of because that's pretty cool. Yes. So it was the most wonderful thing and the most terrifying thing all at the same time. (laughs) And it it really is. It's pressure unlike any other you've ever felt. Stay in the red dot, all of the lights. You only get one take. So if you mess up, that's it. You know, but the opportunity to do a TED talk and to talk about community um, revitalization, which I love from my perspective as a grassroots leader was amazing. And I didn't know which, which aspect of the story to tell and, and how do I convey this to an audience larger than those who know me in Tallahassee. Right. And, and put a process, put a process to it. And so in my Ted talk, I wanted 
the regular person hearing my TED talk to one, feel the responsibility to their own community to get involved and to do something and to two, understand that there can be a process to it. Is this something you would want to do again if you had the chance? I would love to do it again. I would love to talk a little bit about, um, I guess, female leadership and community because there is a difference. There are some things that female leaders run into that I don't think men do. That um, mm. I, I've never really separated myself as gender, um, as a female leader or whatever. But I'm noticing as I talk to more leaders and meet other female leaders that we are experiencing some things that men aren't typically. And whether that's internal or whether that's what we're facing when we have to go and speak to the powers that well, like what? Like what? Um, what, are you, what are you talking like that you're not taking it seriously or what do you mean? Yeah, sometimes we're not taking it seriously. I've been called a girl like in a meeting, you know, saying, mm. girl, what, what what do you think you're talking about? Or, do right. you realize who I am? You know, um, right. or I've been asked, yeah. where's, my, where's my husband? I've been asked that. Where's my husband? I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm leading this meeting. It's me, you know. So some of those things. And then yeah. that work-life family balance. There's a balance in leading and then being at home and how all that transfers that I think needs to be highlighted. Okay, just two more questions. What is one thing or person that has changed or altered the trajectory of your life to this point? I would have to say that thing being motherhood um, has altered the trajectory of my life. Um, it has caused me to look at the world differently and more objectively because I'm raising children in a generation that is so different from the one I was raised in. So I've had to learn to listen better and to hear them so that I parent them well and allow freedoms, but not allow freedoms at the same time. So it's, it's, call, it's caused me to have a, a different outlook on the way I do things, the way I hear people, the way I lead, the way I receive people, right? Because I have eight children now and they're all personalities are different. I have to almost be a different person when dealing with each one of them. So that managing of those personalities have changed the way I deal with outside of my home. Sure. And so I would have never thought that I credit motherhood to that um, aspect, but that has been the lens by which I do stuff. Even in tough negotiating situations when I'm trying to get stuff, I think about when my kids was toddlers and I wanted them to do something that they, their will didn't want them to do. How did I, <laughs> you know, how did I work through that? And so that's a good key, right. key skill to have. Oh yeah. So, yeah, if you yes. can if you can convince a 12 or 14 year old to do something, you can handle a board meeting no problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm going to squeeze one more question in here. You've mentioned faith several times and uh just wanted to for you to share a little bit about the role of faith in in your life and your family. Definitely. Um I didn't grow up in a what I would call a religious home at all. My mom she prayed. Um, I went to church as a child, but mostly I walked because she didn't take me there. 
And but I, I was saved at a young age, so I had an idea of what faith was. But I married a man who um is an elder in the church. He grew up my in-laws are pastors, and my husband grew up very, very religious. So our worlds kind of like ran into each other, and I didn't realize how secular I was and how religious he was. But we fi- finally found a really good balance of faith and how um, it works outside of religiosity. That's a whole nother episode to talk about. Sure. Religiosity. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. But faith plays a really big key. I don't do anything without praying because I feel in myself, because I'm a believer, that I don't have infinite wisdom on what needs to be done. So I am always looking to God through prayer to ask, what are the next steps? What is your mind for your people in this community? How do I lead? Even when I get up to the podium to speak for three minutes at a commission meeting, I am praying, God, what should I say? Right. Because I am I believe I'm being led by God in every single thing that I do. And that sounds simple to people and they don't like to hear that. They want to put some bigger art form to it. But that is the truth of my life every single day that I'm praying. God, what's your mind for your people? How do I lead? What do I say? Send the resources. And and so it's, it's definitely major in my life. So Talithia, this podcast is named How I Got Here. And we've talked about how you got to this point in your life. Where do you think here might be for you in three to five years from now? Yeah. So here for me in three to five years, I'm hopefully still um, leading my community, but not in a leadership role. I hope that I have led well. And there is someone that's going to come up and say, hey, lady, I like you. You've been good but you've inspired me to lead and I have greater ideas. And so that I'm leading this community from uh, more wisdom and mentorship role, but that in my personal life, that maybe I'm doing my podcast that I've learned about um, how to do that. And I've really um, gotten comfortable with sharing my own voice and having these conversations with other people that want to have community conversations, parenting conversations, or just any anything that I really want to talk about. And that I've written a book. That's I want to write a little um, manual about community revitalization from a grassroots perspective, the ground zero of it. Hopefully, I'll have my master's degree. That's one of the things. That's a personal big goal that I'm working on um, that I can, for myself, this would be something I do for myself, that I plan to do all of this schooling that I never got to do. And and although my master's degree field would change, I'm thinking more so urban planning or um, some kind of leadership, but that that will be something I do for myself. That was Talithia Edwards. As she continues to share her voice, our community learns and becomes a better place because of it. I also want to let you know about a community-wide effort to help the Edwards family renovate their home and add much-needed space through a GoFundMe account set up by Tallahassee Chamber Chair and Capital City Bank Co-COO Beth Corum. I encourage you to check it out. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. 
thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications, who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.